Hello and welcome to episode 241 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? That's good. I'm also good. Thank you. Had a nice little stint of travel and I'm happy to be home. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of things going on. You were multiple places this week, even before we recorded. So good for you. Thank you. How was your adventure? I know last weekend you popped down to Florida for a minute or two, and then you were in Dulles. You just missed the pandas at Dulles by a day. I did. I did literally the only exciting thing to happen at Dulles in in maybe decades, (laughs) and I missed it by a day, and it went right by, literally right down the road in front of where our office previously was, unfortunately, which is just icing on the cake. But yeah, I was down in Florida with a friend of the show, Ned Russell, to ride Brightline, the new train that opened at Orlando's airport that goes all the way down to Miami. And that was a fun time. Bit odd to take a day trip from New York down to Orlando and then fly back up from Miami in the same day. But I did it and it was an adventure, let's say. Go on. Okay. Well, I flew Spirit both ways. So from LaGuardia down to Orlando and then Spirit again back up from Miami up to LaGuardia. It was cheap. It was very cheap. The price was right. It was hundreds of dollars less than anything else. And I always say, if you know what you're getting into with Spirit, you're going to have a fine time so long as everyone else around you also knows Uh what the deal is and what's going to happen. But that wasn't really the issue. So it was a 6.30 a.m. flight, Sunday morning out of LaGuardia, very early, first flight of the day for the crew, the aircraft. The aircraft was there overnight. You think everything is going to be fine. The flight usually operates almost always half an hour ahead of schedule. So they push back early, they close the door. There's no one else out there at LaGuardia, so they block in half an hour early. And I am sitting in row one, as I do on Spirit, because I bought up to the big front seat for how much do you think I paid, Ian? Oh, I mean, the going rate was usually 40 bucks, but that was years ago. So I I will say 50. I paid outright during booking $40 for the return flight. So you nailed that. But on the way down, I bid for an upgrade to the big front seat for $16. (laughs) $16, which I'm pretty sure is the cheapest seat on the plane if that bid goes through. I don't think you can get a seat on Spirit that cheap. But anyway, I'm sitting at the front of the plane so I can overhear all of the chatter between the ground crew, the flight crew, the cabin crew. And there's also right in front of me is the flight attendant information screen, basically, that if you've ever been on an Airbus, any modern Airbus, you turn A320, at least you right as you enter the aircraft, just to the left on the bulkhead wall, There's a computer display, and it has all sorts of vital stats about the aircraft. The audio message it can play, the lights, the door, the temperature, smoke detection, all that. And it just so happened to be on the water waste screen of that display. And I'm staring at that, noticing, huh, the waste quantity meter is already at 70% for the first flight of the day. And there's a message that says, waste tank, not empty, check level, ground service required. And I'm thinking to myself, I feel like that's going to cause a problem. And lo and behold, like five minutes later, one of the flight attendants sees that and goes, huh, that's probably not right. And captain comes out, looks at that. And they, they're arguing back and forth, maybe not arguing, they're conversing back and forth with the ground crew. They're like, hey, this plane's been here overnight. What's going on? They go, oh, well, we tried doing it last night and it 
didn't really work. So we'll get a mechanic and we'll get another ground service vehicle out there. We'll we'll try to do it again. And a couple minutes later, I can see the waste quantity meter going a little up, a little down, a little up, and a little down, and then something's not really going right. And then all of a sudden, the quantity drops to zero very quickly, as if there was something wrong <laughs> with the meter telling us how much waste was actually in the waste tank. And a few minutes later, the captain comes back on board. He was outside overseeing what was going on. He goes, it is, and I'm going to clean the language up here, it is a scene down there. Uh, Apparently, what happened is the ground servicing truck they used had some sort of issue. And for lack of better terminology, it kind of exploded on the ramp. And anything that was in (laughs) the waste tank of this the 70% full waste tank on this A320 full. was now either in the truck, on the truck, or on the ramp all around the aircraft. Thankfully, it doesn't seem like anyone got a shower of any sort, but the captain came on board <laughs> with this look of like, it is a mess down there. I can't believe what's going on. But thankfully, there were no injuries, no machinery issues of any sort. They were able to, I don't know, shovel everything out of the way and get us pushed back about 20 minutes late. But that's too much for 6.30 in the morning. I mean, to me, there are a couple things here. One, that – I mean, I assume Spirit doesn't service the waste tank on the A320 no, after every was... flight. So, I guess I'm now very curious as to how much the tank fills up after each flight. Like, how many flights can they go without having it serviced? And then two, you only left 20 minutes late. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. I guess that's the benefit of being – 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday, there's really not much else going on. There are other, probably other aircraft at that hour that need any sort of mechanical or servicing, especially since they're not getting any other inbound aircraft yet, so they're not servicing anything. But they probably could have operated the flight with the waste tank at about 70%, I've been told by some other professionals. But they didn't seem to want to do that, or maybe they would have had it not been able to be serviced, or maybe they would have just told us to please hold it in until we get to Orlando. (laughs) Oh, I hope your return flight was a bit less eventful. Yeah, it was fine. We did have a belligerent passenger also on the poop plane, I'm now going to call it. But the flight back out of Miami was great, extremely uneventful. Miami is the worst airport I think I've ever been to and the worst major airport at least the concourse that houses Spirit Frontier and unfortunately United, it is whatever LaGuardia used to be, it is now located brick by brick down in Miami. Truly off. They didn't rebuild LaGuardia, they just moved it to Miami. They moved it brick by brick to Miami and called it Concourse G. There you go. Well, you made it back and that's a good thing because we've got a lot to talk about this week. And we'll start with a follow-up to last week's news, which was a Delta pilot being indicted on charges of interfering with the flight crew because he threatened the captain with a gun on the flight deck if the captain diverted the aircraft due to a medical emergency. If that wasn't story enough enough for you, it gets somehow worse Because it turns out that this particular person who has now been charged with a federal crime is also a lieutenant in the Air Force Reserve. Actively deployed with the Air Force Reserve. Deployed to Rammstein Air Base in Germany. 
as he was in training at the 603rd Air Operations Center at the base. A spokesperson for the U.S. Air Forces in Europe confirms that he was there, confirms that the base will not be impacted, and confirms that this man's access to sensitive information and the center's sensitive facilities have been suspended pending the outcome of the judicial proceedings. We learned about this first from a listener last week who emailed us and said, hey, did you see that there's filings in the docket that say this person can't make their arraignment and the arraignment's been moved? So I clicked on that and it turns out that the arraignment has been delayed because he is in Germany and they need to get him back from Germany. So we'll now have to wait until January for the arraignment to learn more about what the government is alleging Dunn did on the flight deck. And it definitely, the whole situation raises many more questions than we have answers. We have no answers, but we have a lot have more no questions. Answers. So we do already know that it was quite a while between the incident and when the indictment was unsealed or made public. We don't know if the incident was reported right away or if the captain waited a while or what took so long for this indictment to go through. And if there were pending investigation or charges or whatever against the co-pilot here is why he was able to be actively deployed. Because I have been told that military does background checks to see if there's any pending, I guess, litigation or criminal charges against anyone being deployed. So it's a very interesting situation because clearly somebody knew because Delta had either fired the pilot or he had quit or something had happened here. So I guess we're going to have to wait until January to get a little more clarity on this extremely odd situation. Yeah, especially to figure out the timeline of the investigation and the process here. So just we'll keep on it and see what we see. Not for nothing, but the NTSB is planning on holding a pilot mental health roundtable in December, the first of multiple events. This was announced by Jennifer Homney, who's the chair of the NTSB, during a speech at the beginning of this week, speaking at the Air Traffic Control Association's Global Aviation Conference. She says, quote, it's somewhat of an open secret that current rules incentivize people to either lie about their medical history when it comes to mental health or to avoid seeking help in the first place. And this is something that we've talked about in the context, not just of last week's episode, but also the week before that, when we talked about the Alaska Airlines pilot trying to shut down the Horizon Air E-175. How many continues on? that she's frankly concerned about the safety consequences of a system that unintentionally shames and silences people who are struggling. So the NTSB is taking it seriously. That's all well and good. But as we've talked about in episodes past, and I think it's worth mentioning again, the NTSB's role is a safety organization and a safety organization alone. They can make recommendations to the FAA, but the NTSB themselves cannot implement policy that is then binding on airlines or pilots or anything like that. It'll have to come from the FAA. So this is good to see that the NTSB is taking it seriously, but it would be even better if the FAA were perhaps doing this and taking the lead on this because they have the power to make the changes. Yeah, the same is actually happening tomorrow as David Shepardson from Reuters obtained tomorrow's testimony for the near miss 
hearings. So there's a bunch of hearings and panels going on, and the NTSB is real clear to say we do not have the authority to promulgate operating standards, nor do we certificate organizations, individuals, or equipment. Instead, we advance safety through our investigations and recommendations. And it goes on and on and on, basically saying, FAA, wake up and do something. It's very much the same here. But again, this is not an FAA standalone issue. This is a global issue of mental health, specifically with pilots of aircraft. This is not a US-centric, this is not an FAA-specific thing. But it is very refreshing to hear somebody that the head of the NTSB get involved in this and say, we have to do something, otherwise safety could be jeopardized. Yeah. Jason, we talked about an error return for a Titan Airways A321neo shortly after it happened. We didn't really know much then, but we know a lot more now. And what we know is not what we thought it was going to be. The UK AIB put out a special bulletin last week that said the damage to the Titan Airways A321neo that had up until a few months ago been operating as an aircraft for the United Kingdom's government, specifically carrying the king and queen. That aircraft had been reconverted into their VIP configuration and going into the TCS world travel kind of world tour, you know, highfalutin world tour mode. And so they were flying it from London to Orlando to pick up that leg of the tour. And it departed Stansted Airport. And shortly after departure, in the climb at about 10,000 feet, there were multiple staff members on board. And one of the staff members on board happened to be a loadmaster. And the loadmaster was walking through the cabin not long after takeoff and heard excessive cabin noise and noticed that one of the window seals had been damaged. They stopped their climb. They made it up to 14,500 feet. They came back to Stansted. They landed and they realized that multiple windows had been damaged. The AAIB, the airline conducted an investigation. They took the aircraft apart and they looked at those windows and they said, huh, there's a lot of melty bits here. What could have happened? It gets more interesting. Well, it Turns out, after they converted the aircraft back into the VIP configuration, after they repainted everything, they decided that it would be a good thing to do to use the aircraft for a film shoot. Now, what we don't know is whether or not this was a commercial for the airline, whether it was an external film shoot of something or else, but there were large, high-powered lights used to simulate a sunrise that were placed close to the aircraft, on both sides of the aircraft. And on the left side of the aircraft, on the day before the aircraft flew, those lights were left powered on for hours on end, simulating the sunrise. Well, they also, not in a simulated fashion, but in a very real fashion, melted the plane. Yes. The AIIB put out a lovely report with lots of nice photos. They said the lights were first shown on the right side of the aircraft for approximately five and a half hours with the light focused on the cabin windows just aft of the overwing exits. The lights were then moved to the left side of the aircraft where they illuminated a similar area on the left side for approximately four hours. And the photos are great. You can see the very impressive looking lights, the light array. It's not even lights. It's an array of lights that I assume 
they're LED, but I guess if they were halogen or some sort of other old-fashioned, high-energy, very heat-intensive light, that would start to explain things a little more clearly. Yeah. So we've got a blog post up that includes both the flight path as well as some of the photos from the UK AIB's report. Just very interesting to see the damage on the windows. Four total windows were damaged. One had a displaced pane, inner pane and rubber seal. Two after that damaged window lost the outer pane. And then there was a fourth window where the seal was raised up. So all four windows were, it's the first four windows aft of the overwing exits on this particular aircraft. So just the safety bulletin is interesting because it lays out all of these and, and talks about the seals and the melting points and all the tests they're doing. And at the end, they're basically like, we should probably come up with some better solutions for yeah. using high-powered I mean, hot lights next to an airplane. They even gave the parameters for the lights themselves. They say the lighting capacity was 12,000 watts. The object to be illuminated should be a minimum distance of 10 meters away from those lights. The maximum surface temperature should be 200 Celsius. And then they go on to say, well, it's likely the floodlights were positioned closer than 10 meters. And that's probably why there was I mean, damage. I'm looking at the picture right now, and they were definitely closer than 10 meters. Yes, they were definitely closer than 10 meters. They were pretty much as close as you're going to get without putting them inboard of the engines. So, and a couple people have asked, well, if these lights are shining on the aircraft and it's hot, why don't windows melt when an aircraft is left out on the sun? And it's a good point, but you have to remember this is an array of six extremely powerful 12,000 watt total amount of energy shining on a very, very specific part of the aircraft, very centralized to three or four windows. It's basically like if you take a magnifying glass and try to burn an ant with the sun. I don't, you shouldn't do that. That's basically what they did to this poor aircraft. But when I read the AII, AAIB report, I thought to myself, huh, I have a vague recollection of this yeah. happening before. This seems familiar. And indeed, it is familiar because it has happened before and not all that long ago. When Turkish Airlines took delivery of one of its first 787-9s, it did the same thing. It had a photo shoot for its brand new aircraft and proceeded to melt some of the exterior windows. Thankfully, they, they noticed that before the aircraft had a chance to go back into service and, and operate a passenger flight. But this has happened before. So when the AAIB says we should probably set some standards on how you light an aircraft for an event such as this, there is now precedent at least twice in the last few years saying that, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye out for the final report because maybe we'll learn even more about the lights. Do it in winter. There you go. It's a little colder. <laughs> I don't think that that would make a difference. Okay. For a long time, we had a weekly max 737 MAX update when the MAX was grounded. And now it seems like we have a weekly Pratt & Whitney 1100G engines update, and this week is no different. So this week, we learned a few things. One, Indigo will ground 30 jets in 2024. So at, at any one time, they're going to have 30 jets on the ground, Oof. which is... I mean, a lot rough. But they say they're pushing forward with capacity and they'll be impacted, but their schedule will still run. Lufthansa will have 20 on the ground each day. 
20 aircraft that is not 20 engines so is that so Lufthansa 20 aircraft. or Lufthansa group that is unclear this was quoting Carson Spohr speaking during the Lufthansa group's earnings so he may have been speaking about Lufthansa group so I, I guess that would include the Swiss and Brussels I think just got their first well they just know? got their first so they wouldn't be affected but <laughs> you never know that's true at this point you never know Things are still getting worse as the inspection regime becomes clear. Air New Zealand is suspending its service to Hobart and will have one to four aircraft on the ground during 2024 at any one time. It doesn't sound like much, but they don't have a particularly large fleet. On the flip side, I don't know if this is the total flip side, but in the somewhat, hey, here's a fringe benefit column. Embraer has a Portuguese maintenance unit, and that unit is going to be working on the Pratt & Whitney PW1000G geared turbofan engines. So, they're, I don't know if the word excited is apt, but they're forecasting a tripling of revenues at the Portuguese MRO because wow. of all the work that they're expected to bring in from the Pratt & Whitney engines. Okay. Good for them. They're not the newest generation of Embraer's powered by GTFs isn't exactly a bestseller, but apparently maintenance of other aircraft with those engines is a huge source of revenue. That's great for them. And our final update on this one doesn't deal with Pratt & Whitney engines at all because China Eastern has chosen the CFM Leap 1A to power its A320 Neo family aircraft order. I'm not sure if it has anything to do with the Pratt & Whitney engine issues, or if they just think that the CFM Leap 1A is better for them. I threw it in there just to see what sticks. So they will not be taking the, the Pratt & Whitney engines on their A320neo family orders. Good move, probably. Probably, at least for now. Mm-hmm. Jason. Yes. You are thinking about changing careers and running a very particular airline. I can't tell you about it though, because it's a secret and mm. you can't see it. You'll never see it. You'll never fly it. You'll never know where it goes. You might hear about it, but if you've ever heard of the airline or the operation known as Janet, now might be your chance to operate the extremely secretive US Air Force outfit that runs out of Las Vegas's airport to uh, classified destinations. Not really classified, <laughs> but pretty secret locations. We all know where it goes. If you don't, look it up and end up on some sort of US government watch list. That's a good idea. Encouraging our listeners to end up on a watch list. Yeah, let's encourage them. Look up Janet. They operate a fleet of, or they own, I guess, outright a fleet of seven, Boeing 737-600s. And the US government is looking for a new operator of the type for some reason. This comes to us from Aviation Week. Apparently, it has been long operated by whomever EG&G is, who has been acquired by URS Corp and AECOM. I, I know some of those names. But apparently, the Air Force wants someone new to operate its fleet of 737-600s to spooky, scary, classified places out in the desert of Nevada. So that could be an interesting opportunity. I can't help but wonder if maybe this ends up as some sort of offshoot of a US commercial airline that or some other commercial airline that happens to operate that type. There aren't all that many, I guess, airlines out there that might be interested in this, but it would be, you know, very interested to hear like, welcome aboard this Janet 737-600 operated 
by Mesa Airlines. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you get a fleet of what, six 737-600s, and you have to operate 9,000 flights a year. It's a big operation, a lot more yeah. flights than I thought. But apparently, you'll operate a lot of flights, but never more than like 300 miles, according to the Air Force, which is just a very unique and interesting opportunity. Yeah. Going back to the EG&G bit, the original operators of the Janet fleet, if you don't know about them, they had a hand in pretty much everything that was super duper secret that the US government worked on from World War II onwards. So very interesting history. And, and there's a couple good books, I'll have to think of the title and then put it in the show notes, about EG&G's history because they had their fingers in, it, it's like the lesser known, like everybody knows like Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, and et cetera, et cetera. But EG&G had a very strong hand in a lot of very super duper secret stuff. And it's an interesting history. Well, Janet is definitely super, super secret, but it's also one of the most public in your face, super, super secrets that you really can't miss if you happen to be in Las Vegas. I don't know what you're talking about. Never seen it, never heard of it. If the US government is listening, there is no Janet. <laughs> All right. Airlines that do exist, but slots that don't. Hey, that was good. I'll take it. So when JetBlue first received permission to fly to Amsterdam from Schiphol Airport, or the slot coordinator at Schiphol Airport, the first slots they received, they denounced as commercially non-viable, which, I mean, true, mostly. Now they have no slots at all because of the massive cuts that Schiphol has put into place. Not is it Schiphol that put it into place, or the the Dutch, Dutch government? government is forcing the airport to put it into place, and so they now just don't have slots at all, and they're very very upset. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this before, where where JetBlue threatened that it would proceed with legal action if if we're kicked out of Amsterdam because we have this open skies agreement, we're going to petition the U.S. DOT to make sure that. KLM loses access to JFK because it's also a slot-controlled airport. And that, that argument at first seemed pretty ridiculous, but it seems like the DOT is buying into it, at least in theory, the idea of maybe we need to do something to move the needle with the Dutch government. And in this case, I think for the first time ever, I might be wrong on that, but maybe for the first time ever, the US DOT has asked KLM to submit its winter or upcoming summer schedule with the DOT, which I don't think is something that they have done before. So maybe we will see the, the, the giant that is the DOT wake up and, and do something to help JetBlue or probably not the other airlines that were also unfortunately kicked out of Amsterdam, probably just for JetBlue here. But it, it's this is not over. No, it's, it's certainly not over. And the DOT is negotiating with the Dutch government. They have initiated consultations with the Netherlands and EU while they try and figure out what's going on here. So who knows where this stops, but it's certainly gotten a lot more interesting this week. The DOT basically agreed with JetBlue as well as Airlines for America, which is the airlines trade group that the Netherlands 
didn't follow the approach that they were supposed to as required by EU regulations. And so the Dutch government has said that they're trying to reduce noise at Schiphol, so they're cutting flights. And the DOT is saying, well, our agreement, the EU regulations and our open skies agreements say that the competitive impact of any noise-related operational restrictions needs to be balanced against less restrictive alternatives. And this goes back to the fact that KLM has consistently argued that we're going to be less noisy just because we have newer aircraft. And so we don't need to cut flights. And so it seems like the DOT, US DOT, is buying into a bit of this. And they have also raised some competition concerns saying, well, JetBlue got cut out completely and will receive absolutely no slots whatsoever. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some sort of negotiated adjustment to this, but it's not clear what the DOT can force them to do for JetBlue rather than what they can do to reciprocate the the lack of slots given to JetBlue. Yeah, we will definitely keep a close watch on this because I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but it's certainly something we have not seen in such a, a major scale at such a major airport. And remember, it's not just JetBlue that's impacted. Delta, I think it's like the second largest operator at Schiphol. It also has lost a, a good number of slots that I'm sure they can't be happy about. But maybe they should stop operating 30-year-old 767s there and, and operate something a little newer and lessen the noise. Maybe wouldn't have pissed everyone off so much. But <laughs> definitely got to keep a close eye on this one. There you go. Hey, you want to know a fun fact that I learned today or I yesterday? Do. That surprised me greatly, or so says Lufthansa. This year, all Lufthansa Airlines will be profitable for the whole year for the first time ever. Wow. I don't know if that's a good thing or a a bad thing because these are large airlines, but I know a, a few of these, specifically Austrian and I think Brussels, have not exactly been top performers. But the whole group here, Lufthansa, Swiss, Eurowings, Austrian, Brussels, Lufthansa, Cargo. I don't know where they fit something like that weird little Italian Air Dolomati operation they have, but the, the whole group making a profit. That's that's pretty fantastic. The, the whole group, yeah. Prior to the pandemic, the pandemic was a, a mixed bag of, of passenger airlines, of course, not making any money and cargo making a ton of money. But prior to the pandemic, the holdout for Lufthansa group reporting a profit was Eurowings because it had never made money. Well, we'll see what some of the the more minor airlines like Discover Airways, is it? Airlines, Airways, whatever Eurowings Discover became, uh, or City Airlines, are we counting them too? So next year might be a a very different story. We'll, We'll see. Yeah, we'll see next year. But for 2023, it sounds like the entire Lufthansa group will turn a profit. Not turning a profit, Spirit Aerosystems. We talked about it a few weeks. Was it last week? I might have even just been last week. Who can keep track of time? Who can keep track of time indeed? Yes, we talked about it last week. Spirit Aerosystems lost $204 million in the third quarter. And we talked about that in the context of Spirit agreeing to new terms with Boeing, which basically gives them a huge chunk of money check for $100 million, as well as better near-term supplier agreements. So so basically, they get more money now and they get a little less money later on to shore up their financial position. 
Well, now Spirit Aerosystems is seeking to renegotiate its contracts with Airbus. So Spirit is best known for producing the fuselage of the 737, the the greenies that get put on the train and trained out uh, out west to Seattle. But they also produce multiple pieces for Airbus aircraft. They produce the composite wings for A220s, and they produce the A350 composite center fuselage sections. So important parts of these aircraft and a major supplier to Airbus. So now they're seeking to renegotiate with them. Interim Chief Executive Patrick Shanahan, who is a former Boeing executive in his own right, said that between us and Airbus, we have to come to some solution. It's a near-term action that I am committed to undertaking, and my counterparts at Airbus feel the same sense of urgency. While Airbus may share the same sense of urgency, they're not as likely to share the same sense of largesse that Boeing is feeling at the moment, or has recently felt. So they'll likely renegotiate their contracts with Airbus, but they'll also likely not get the same terms that they got from Boeing really feel like Spirit Aerosystems is really primarily a Boeing customer and is going to negotiate with Boeing or really bend to the will of Boeing. And and Airbus is just kind of, and also ran in this situation, but they've got to make good between all, all of your customers, I guess. There you go. I don't know if we mentioned this, but we've got a little bit more information about Bamboo Airways just shedding Roots, aircraft, everything, people, it everything really seemingly came out of nowhere. I know tourism in Asia has, has not rebounded quite as quickly as Europe and the Americas, but Bamboo is a somewhat new airline. I, I flew them, I think, in 2019 before they had any of their wide bodies or flew really long haul, but they are already not flying long haul anymore. They have cut every major long-haul international routes. I think all their 787s have been either grounded or returned to leasing companies. Basically, all of the expansion over the last few years is gone. Really disappointing for a new entrant in a market that really had a lot of competition, but Bamboo was shooting more for the premium market, especially with those 787s on the long-haul segment. But it just can't get a foothold and doesn't seem like it has all that much more time remaining unless they really double down on domestic, the core of what it originally set out to do. But we've seen this play out before and it's not typically pretty. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on it to see if they can right the ship and whether or not the dissolution of its long haul plans make anything better for the airline as a whole or if it's just if it's just on its way out, the whole thing. Sticking in Asia, some interesting order news coming out of EVA Air, based in Taiwan, with orders for 18 A350s and 15 A321neos. The 321neos aren't so much of a surprise because they've got A321s now, but the 18 A350s is a big get for Airbus because EVA is a very strong Boeing operator on the long haul side. Yeah, this is a big defection to, I guess, not maybe not replace the 777s, but really augment them, probably more focused to their older A330 fleet. But this is a pretty big defection, a major, I don't know if this is an expansion or, or maybe a, a, just a major replacement program for, for EVA, but that that's exciting. Really, seemingly, at least to me, came out of nowhere. 
I mean, the real news here is that the statistical likelihood of a Hello Kitty A350 ooh, just went way up. Yeah. Some of EVA's older 777s, so one of which I think is one of the Hello Kitty jets is getting a little elderly. But yeah, an A- A350 in uh, whatever one of their many Hello Kitty liveries, that would be a sight to see. And I hope we see it soon. So we'll close the show with asking if you're a pilot flying for FedEx or UPS and you're listening to the podcast, you probably already know about this. But your airline wants you to go fly for PSA. Who? So cargo demand is down. FedEx and UPS are both telling their pilots, go fly at PSA. And PSA is saying, you know what? That's a great idea because we will put you in as a captain. We will offer you a $250,000 signing bonus, $175,000 of which comes in your first paycheck. And you get a path to fly for American Airlines. Guaranteed path. Yeah, that's a nice offer. But wow, did the the cargo market really peaked and cratered real quick. I don't think anyone didn't see the macro dynamics coming. But it's very interesting to me watching how it's playing out at individual airlines. Because the FedEx and UPS kind of shuttle to PSA, and I assume other regional carriers are going to pick up on this, are going to come up with something of their own. Because the the amount of training that, that goes in to bringing these pilots on board is a lot less. However, you, you then have more senior pilots making more money. So I, I guess it all balances out there. But it's really interesting to see how how major, major airlines like FedEx and, and UPS, which have hundreds of aircraft, are trying to whittle down their ranks and quickly. Quite the fall from grace going from flying for um, FedEx and UPS, where you could be going Tokyo, Anchorage, Seoul, China, all these cities in China, going to your super hubs on these large 747s or, or 777s, and then suddenly you're, you're operating at an E-145 between Dallas and Pensacola four times a day with humans in the back, not boxes. That's that's really the big difference. That's the problem. You'll have to interact with people and children <laughs> and explain things. Boxes don't require much. They just sit there and they go. Wow, that's a big bonus and a nice path, but PSA, I know we're talking about the the pilot hiring bubble. Is this going to burst anytime soon? And it, it kind of feels like that's going to become a, a bigger and bigger topic recently, but both FedEx and UPS shepherding their pilots to PSA is not something I think I saw a year ago. No, certainly not. We'll put a link in the show notes to the the landing pages that PSA Airlines has on their website just so you can take a look, even if you're not a pilot, interesting, some interesting reading. But we'll leave it there because this has been episode 241 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening.